from Psalm 118, verses 1 and 2, and then 19 through 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for the sunshine today, Lord, where we can proceed into the sanctuary together, shouting Hosanna together, Lord, without being encumbered by rain or cold temperatures, Lord. So we thank you, Father, for giving us the sunshine this morning. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and into worship with your gathered bride. Lord, we pray for those who were not able to be among us today, Lord. We pray, Father, Lord, as we turn our attention, Lord, to the worship of your word, Lord, the reading of your word through worship, Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to believe and to understand. And Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the work of Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in a few weeks, um, about the third Sunday of Eastertide, we will uh, be considering the road to Emmaus scene in Luke chapter 24 together, which is a great scene. Um, and obviously, we are going to unpack quite a bit on that Sunday. I don't want to obviously do that today. But the reason I bring that up is that I would like to actually begin this morning by reading what is probably, well, not probably, it is one of the key verses that point us to a Christological or a Christ-focused interpretation of all of Scripture. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Luke writes this. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, the Lord Jesus, interpreted to them, the two that he was walking with on the road to Emmaus, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So why begin Psalm 118 here, right? Hint, right? Spoiler alert, because all of scripture is about the Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> right? We talked about this briefly this morning, and I had this thought, and I said, you know, uh, jokingly, right? Heaven forbid we interpret all of the Bible as Jesus told us to interpret it, right? We should interpret it with him in mind. So what we are going to consider today and even next week, we're going to look at this psalm today and next week because of how it really sheds light upon the celebrations that we will have this morning on Palm Sunday, throughout the entirety of Holy Week, 
and even next Sunday as we celebrate the bodily resurrection of our Lord. So just to kind of gear up and get a running start at this, consider really where the Psalms have taken us over the course of the entire season of Lent, right? So and how they have brought us really to this point in Psalm 118. In Psalm 121 that we began with, this guided us really up into the hills of the wilderness of Lent, right? Reminding us that our help comes from Yahweh who created heaven and earth and who keeps us and defends us like a loving shepherd. Psalm 95 called us to make a joyful noise or a shouting, loud, exuberant noise of praise and worship to God who is our creator but who is also the rock of our salvation. But it also reminded us to not harden our hearts as Israel did in the wilderness when they rebelled during their 40 years of testing in the wilderness. Psalm 23 reminded us that even through trial and temptation and even up to the point of death, Yahweh is our shepherd, and in him we lack nothing, and in him we have nothing to fear. And then last week, really leading us right up to the foot of the hill of Zion, Psalm 130 placed us really in a posture of waiting, waiting for Yahweh, who is our Adonai, who is our master, to have mercy on us, to forgive our iniquities, and challenge us to hope in the promises given to us in his word, both written and incarnate. And so now, as we come to Psalm 118, Psalm 118 brings us into Jerusalem. It invites us to experience the triumphal entry that we just heard read by Ethan in Matthew 21. And what this psalm does is it guides us through all of Holy Week. It guides us through the betrayal of Christ, through the death of Christ, and the, and the resurrection of Christ. So simply put, Psalm 118 helps us to see the fulfillment of the abundant redemption declared to us throughout the four previous psalms that we've looked at over the course of Lent. And so beginning then with the first two verses and even the last two verses of this psalm, what we have is a general call to praise, both for the individual and for the entire covenant community. And take note really of how this builds upon what we've looked at over the last four weeks with, with the audience focus of those four psalms, right? These, these four psalms focus on the individual and on the corporate gathering. And so this worship then that we are called into in Psalm 118 is both for you as an individual Christian, but also for us as the gathered bride of Christ. And so we read in the first two and the last two verses, Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. His steadfast or his hesed, his covenant love endures forever. Let Israel, let the church say... His steadfast love endures forever. You are my God, he says in verse 28. You are my God, and I will extol you. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. I inverted those. I apologize. Verse 29. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so notice as, as we get started here, where our call to praise, the psalmist is calling us to praise, where it is grounded or where it is based. It is based completely and totally in the love of God and and his hesed and his steadfast, his covenant, his loyal love and mercy. This God who is my God and who is your God and in whom we worship and praise together. And so now entering Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, arrives on the colt of a donkey And has become now the embodiment of the steadfast, hesed love of our Lord God. And he is the fulfillment 
of the abundant redemption found in Yahweh that has been promised to us in Psalms 121 and 95 and 23 and 130. Our Eastern Orthodox friends state here and they say that we are to give thanks to Yahweh for the Lord Jesus and for the salvation that he has provided to us through Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. So as we continue on, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, O church, for his hesed, his steadfast, loyal love endures forever. And so now, assuming, right, that we have all answered this call to come and to praise together, right, Psalm 118 now turns and actually begins to set the stage for our entire Holy Week celebrations and, frankly, even mourning. And in verses 19 through 26, which is the major chunk of the rest of this passage, it begins exactly where we are today. It begins with a celebration of Palm Sunday itself. Starting in verses 19 and 20, Christ, fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah 9 that Chris read at the beginning of our liturgy, Jesus arrives at the city gates, and he calls, he demands for them to be open to him. And we read here in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. Right? This is not a suggestion. This is not even a request. This is a demand. Open to me the gates of righteousness so that I may enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh, and the righteous shall enter through it. So as we look here, pay, pay attention. The psalmist actually gives us some characteristics or some qualifiers of these gates that are placed upon these gates and upon those who are allowed to go through them. He tells us in verse 19 that these are the gates of righteousness and the gate of Yahweh. And notice that not just anyone can come to these gates and demand for them to be opened. And not just anyone can enter through them. Only the righteous can enter through these gates. Because, as we see, only the righteous are allowed into the presence of Yahweh. Those who desire to enter the gates and into the presence of God must meet the prerequisite of being righteous. And only Christ himself meets this requirement perfectly. Because he is the righteousness of God. And for us, it is only through him that we can enter into the gates of God and into the presence of God. Because it is through him that we become the righteousness of God. One of the very, very, very early church fathers named Clement, he was stationed in Rome, right? We actually read his name at least once for sure in one of the letters of Paul. Clement was a disciple, definitely of Paul, but probably also of Peter. And he writes in his letter to the Corinthians, which is more commonly known as the letter of 1 Clement. And he writes this, he says, Seeing then that Christ is the gate of righteousness, whereby we are all blessed who have entered let a person then be found faithful, and let him be wise in the discernment of words. Let him be strenuous in deeds, and let him be pure in Christ. So thinking through this requirement then of righteousness at the beginning of Holy Week, especially knowing what the rest of this week holds for us and for Christ, more importantly. Church Father Origen comments here, he's looking at this, and he says, you know, there's actually there's two gates that are really being referred to here that we need to keep in mind. And he says, there is the gate of righteousness, or what he calls the gate of Zion, but there's also another gate that comes before it, and it is called the gate of death. And he says this. He says, from this passage, we learn that it is never possible for anyone 
to, fit, to be fit to declare the praises of God unless he has been lifted up from the gates of death and has come to the gates of Zion. So let's unpack this, right? Because I thought this was quite fascinating. And let, but let's unpack it, but let, let's, take, let's take Origen's comments really one step further. First, I think Origen is absolutely right. As it relates to the salvific work of God, Christ had to, meaning he was required to pass through the gates of death in order to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Paul tells us in Romans 4, he says that Christ was delivered up, meaning he was delivered up onto the cross for our iniquities, for our sins. He was delivered up on the cross. He, so taking Origen's statement just one step farther, we can proclaim that Jesus was delivered up through the gates of death in order to not only forgive our sins, but to take possession over those gates, to take authority over the gates of death. In his covenant with Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis, God proclaims to Abraham, he says that his seed will possess the gates of his enemies. And his seed, through his seed, all of the nations of the earth earth will be blessed. So by being delivered up for our sins, Christ Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham. And he takes possession of the gates of the enemies of Satan and of hell and of death itself. He even proclaims himself in Revelation 1. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I possess the keys to death and Hades. But as we, as we will celebrate next Sunday, he not only died, but he was delivered up from the grave. He was raised up, not only delivered up for our sins, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, but he was raised up for our justification. Meaning that Jesus passed through the gates of death for us and was raised from the dead, not only proving that he is the Christ, but so that he can call for the gates of righteousness to be opened to all who have faith in him. Paul states again in Romans, he says, Therefore, because we have been made righteous by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as, as Christ, on the colt of a donkey, makes his way into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he calls for the gates of, to be opened for him, and he signals that the salvation of mankind is at hand. And so then moving through verses 21 through 24, we see then that the, the call, this, this demand of Jesus to, for these gates to be opened, it's answered. But verse 21 actually offers us, at least it did for me, a, a bit of a question, a bit of a quandary. So listen to what the psalmist says. So we hear the answer. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Here's where my question came up. Because I'm looking at this entire psalm Christologically, and rightly so, because Jesus told us we could. But we should, obviously, and rightly, I think we could see that the psalmist is giving praise to the Lord God for both his own salvation and for the salvation of the covenant nation of Israel, or for us, the church. But as it relates to Christ, here's where my question came up. I said, how can Yahweh become Jesus' salvation since Jesus is God? Jesus did not sin. He did not need to be saved, right? He did not need to repent. Thankfully, Scripture does not leave us wondering. I'm going to hang out with Paul a little bit longer in Romans. So Paul tells us at the very, very beginning of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 4, 
He says that Jesus was declared or he was appointed, or for us, a lack of a better term, he was proven to be the Christ. Proven that he is who he says he is by his bodily resurrection from the dead. By raising Jesus from the dead, God answers his call of 19 and 20 in our psalm this morning. Open to me the gates so that I can enter in. And Yahweh opens the gates for him and he gives him possession of the gates of his enemies. And he proves that everything that Jesus said was true and that he is the son of God. And we see this beautifully displayed through the next three verses or the next two verses, excuse me, in verses 22 and 23, we see. So I thank you that you have become my salvation or have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So now the psalmist draws upon some metaphorical language, right? He's pointing to the language of construction a little bit, right? And he tells us exactly how Yahweh because of Christ's righteousness, has answered him in his demand for the gates to be opened. So notice just verse uh, 22. Yahweh makes Jesus the cornerstone of completely everything by which our salvation, our faith, our life in God, everything is accomplished because Christ is the cornerstone. So for those that don't know, let me explain the illustration that he's going for here, right? This is... This is Fairly obvious. If you don't know, then you'll figure it out pretty quick. A cornerstone is exactly what it sounds like. Right? It is a stone that sits in the corner of a building. Right? So if you were to build a foundation out of stone, you need something in order to give you a plumb line, right? to, give you, to give you a line of marking to keep everything level. Otherwise, if you've ever played Jenga and you take out one, one brick too many, the whole tower comes falling down. Right? So with a cornerstone... It holds, it stabilizes the building, and you remove it, and it fall, and the whole building falls apart. And so notice here in this verse that the builders themselves have taken that cornerstone, and they've thrown it away. They've rejected it as completely unnecessary. This is exactly the issue with modern theological liberalism and its denominations. They have rejected so many biblical truths about Christ, the cornerstone, that they have become, like Paul tells us, like ships which are tossed around by the sea of every wind of doctrine. And they have accepted what is unbiblical and untrue about Christ and his word and his church. But Yahweh, the psalm tells us in verse 22, God, because of his grace and his mercy and his steadfast, loyal hesed, his love, he honors the sacrifice of the Son, and he has taken Jesus' rejection and has used it to display a marvelous or a miraculous, to use the Hebrew, a miraculous work of his glory by taking Jesus' rejection and accomplishing salvation through his death and through his resurrection. And these truths about Christ, the cornerstone, are completely idiotic to a fallen theology that rejects Christ and his death and his resurrection as unnecessary. Just to use Paul's words, because he uses a very similar terminology in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness. To use a harsher word, it's stupid to those who are perishing. But he says, but for those of us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. 
For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of those who have understanding. I will confound. I will confuse. So God, through the death of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ, has turned the wisdom of the world upon its head. And as Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message, he says, I have expo- he has exposed it as foolishness because the wisdom of the world rejects Christ, the cornerstone. But thankfully, the Lord, by inspiring his word through the Holy Spirit, he actually uses multiple passages in the New Testament to help us understand this better. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, in front of the Sanhedrin, he says this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, insulting the council to their face. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Peter again proclaims in his letter of 1 Peter, he says, As you come to Christ, you, church, are a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Because it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, Peter says, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Everything by which we believe and proclaim, everything by which we have hope in, everything that we have eternal hope and security in rests upon Christ, the cornerstone. To not believe in Christ, to not have faith in Christ, is to reject Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul states, he says, Though Christ, through Christ, excuse me, through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being built up and joined together and growing into a holy temple of the Lord. And so notice here then, because Yahweh has made Christ the cornerstone for those who do believe, verse 24 tells us all we have left is to give praise, or as Psalm 95 told us, to make a joyful, loud, shouting noise. And we just say, this is the day that Yahweh has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. When Psalm 118 calls us to rejoice in Yahweh, and be glad of this new day to bring him praise. This is not, he's not, they're, they're not suggesting, the author is not suggesting just another day of life to be happy for, which we should be. But rather, he's going farther. He's saying, we are to praise God because it is the Lord's day of victory that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Augustine proclaims here, he says, we have only just begun to sing praises to God. He says, this is the day the Lord has made, so let us talk about it. And let us see that the Lord has presented us with it. And let us take the cornerstone as introducing us to the Lord's day of victory. And so then our joyful noise of verse 24 turns into a request as well as an exclamation in verses 25 and 26. So this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So these are the familiar words of Palm Sunday, right? These are the words that we sing together. These are the words that we just sang together as we proceeded into the sanctuary. The hosannas that we shout and the hosannas that we read of in Matthew 21 by the crowds of that first Palm Sunday, this is the exact same word in the Hebrew that's here in verse 25, this phrase, save us. It means the same thing. Hosanna, save us, we pray. So to bless in the name of Yahweh as we go on in verse 26, this demonstrates then a confidence that God's blessing actually also comes with his authority. So let's combine these two. Our shouts of Hosanna, our shouts of save us, should encourage us to always be requesting God's intervention and consistently asking him to continue his work of salvation within our midst. But also having confidence that not only does he have the authority to do so, but in his authority he has already done so in the work of Christ. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Do not pass us by. Do not stop your marvelous, miraculous work of salvation. Hosanna. Save us. And so this puts us really in a posture of confidence, just waiting on God. And out of that posture of Hosanna, out of save us, we come to verse 27, which now transitions us out of Palm Sunday and into the rest of Holy Week. Because it prepares us for what is about to come, the passion and the death of our Lord Jesus. And it says this, Yahweh is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind up the festal sacrifice. Bind it up with cords and up to the horns of the altar. Notice how in this one verse, our liturgical seasons really come full circle in this one verse alone. Advent is our season of waiting, much like Lent. Through Advent, we progressively light candles. Right? We, it leads us to Christmas morning where we celebrate the birth of the light of the world. Epiphany is the season of manifesting or revealing. Christ, G- Jesus is revealed to be the Christ. He's revealed to be the Messiah in his baptism and in his miracles. It's also a season, excuse me, I'm backing up, sorry. And then now in, in Lent, as, as Christ proceeds on Palm Sunday up the Mount of Zion into the city of Jerusalem through its gates... He is now revealed as the light of salvation. He is revealed as the festal sacrifice. Our entire preparation from the first Sunday of Advent until now has been leading up to this week. And here in verse 27, Jesus himself very vividly is delivering himself as the Lamb of God. He's delivering himself as the sacrifice to be bound and carried to the altar. He tells us in John chapter 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Yahweh is God, and he has made his light of salvation to shine upon us in Christ Jesus, who has delivered himself for our sins and who was raised for our justification. Yahweh is my God, we read in verse 28, and Yahweh is your God. And because of the work of Christ... We give him praise for his loyal, 
covenant pursuing love that endures forever. So as I close, I want to finish with a little snippet from the ESV devotional Psalter on this, and then I'll close. The author of that work, he says this, he says, This is what is meant in verse 22, which reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone was thrown into the rubble heap as useless, but has now become the most important building block of all. This is exactly how God works. He comes near to us in all of our distress, taking what the world rejects and dignifying us with eternal significance in Christ. And it is not our doing in any way. It is all from grace. This is the Lord's doing, verse 23 says. And we marvel at this grace. But most of all, we stand in awe of him taking what the world has rejected in Christ. Christ, rejected by the religious elite, has now become the cornerstone of the church, and of which each of us as believers are fellow living stones. This is God's doing, and it is miraculous in our eyes. So take heart, he writes, and make thanks, because God has drawn near to us in his rejected, crucified, resurrected, and triumphant Son. So give thanks to the Lord, O church, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever.